we should come to all of Scripture with a certain amount of fear and trembling. But there are passages that should create more fear and trembling than others. And this is one of those. If you do have a Bible, I hope you'll open it to Revelation chapter 21. We're in the midst of this series, towards the end of it. This is our second to last book uh, week in the book of Revelation. Um, and there are also a few sections in the book of Revelation that if you get bogged down too much in them, you can easily lose sight of the main point of this book. This is one of those sections. In chapter 20, we hear about a thousand years in which Satan will be bound and Christ will reign with the martyrs, after which Satan is re-released before he's finally put away for good. This is the only time this 1,000 years is mentioned in the Bible. And it's fairly vague. But there are actually entire systems of thought that have been built around this, especially in the last couple hundred years. If you follow these sorts of things, this is where you get systems of belief called premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism, or as a professor said in college in a class on the book of Revelation, panmillennialism, which means it's all going to pan out in the end somehow anyway. <laughs> all of these in some way refer to when Jesus will return bodily and how Christians are going to be involved in that. Now this is where we get the popular apocalyptic material like Left Behind, where Christians are raptured out to reign with Christ, Satan is later re-released, he deceives the nations through a world leader, and then there's this all-out war. And it's crazy how similar these so-called biblical movies can look to Die Hard. Isn't it? This is one of those places where we have to be careful of not making more of something than the Bible makes of it. Now, one important concept in studying the Bible is that you begin with what's clear and you move from there to help you think about what's not clear. So in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, we have a clear picture of what the book is all about. And we'll use this to help us interpret the rest of the passage. Let's listen to these verses again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation is about heaven and earth being joined together through Christ, and God again dwelling with man. This is what it's about. Notice this too in verse 3, specifically. God will dwell with them. He will dwell with them. 
Now, I'd like you also, if you can turn there quickly, to go to John chapter 1. John, we believe, is the author of the gospel and of the book of Revelation. Look, you, you have this in a couple of cases. In the books of Luke and Acts, Luke is the author. Luke is part one, Acts is part two. Now, you'll hear lots of debate about this if you go look on the internet, uh, but I, I think that John and Revelation are similar. John is part one, Revelation is part two. And he's provided bookends to show us that this is the case. So, the only place that Jesus is called the Word, Logos, is in John chapter 1 and in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, we heard that this person riding the white horse is called the Word of God. This is the only other time outside of John 1 that this title is given for Jesus. Now, the only places in the New Testament that we have this other particular Greek word for to dwell, where we hear in Revelation 21 that God will dwell with man, are in John's Gospel, chapter 1, and in Revelation chapter 21. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The language here is that of the Old Testament for tabernacle. He came, and in his, uh, his incarnation, Jesus tabernacled among us. The incarnation was God's first dwelling with man. In his life and death and resurrection, Jesus conquered evil and made the way for God to dwell with humanity again. For heaven and earth to be joined together Again, as in Eden. This is what the Gospel of John was about. Now, Revelation is about Jesus continuing to conquer evil through his people. Now, this is hard for us to grasp sometimes. We like to give full weight to Jesus' death and resurrection for the conquering of evil. And that is good. Please hear me. But in Revelation, we hear that Jesus is continuing to conquer evil in the world through the church. The church has a role to play in God's ongoing work to make heaven and earth one. So Revelation is about God coming to dwell with man forever. About Jesus continuing to conquer evil through the church and the fullness of God's dwelling. His new creation coming into the world. Now the question that these chapters and much of Revelation attempts to answer is this. How does God's new creation come into the world? How does God's new creation burst onto the scene in our world? How does the world become a place, using the language that we just heard from Revelation 21, where God wipes away the tears? Where death itself dies? where mourning, crying, and pain become ancient memories for us. I want to draw out a main theme in these scriptures, in Revelation 19-21, through 21, for how God's new creation comes into our world. The theme is this, steadfastness. 
This is what this sermon is going to be about. Steadfastness. Now, I realize that Christ is the one who brings in the new creation. God does the heavy lifting. He is going to usher in the new creation in the end. But God does this within the context of the steadfastness of his people. Remember that Revelation was written to a group of Christians to warn them of the suffering that it was about to come on them. It was to give them a heavenly perspective of what would appear as their failed lives. They worshipped this new God. The one they claimed to be the God over the whole creation who was making all things new. And yet, there's another king who is destroying, obliterating them. It, was, it would be as if in the midst of one of your own darkest moments, God gave you a vision of what would one day come out of that. Maybe even after your own death. But in the case of Revelation, and this is important, there are 22 chapters of the vision. This vision extends for a long time. You know, we like to think of God as a master magician who fixes problems in the kind of snap of his divine fingers, or who flips a heavenly switch and he fixes all the problems of the cosmos. And in some cases, God does work quickly, that's true, but it is far from always the case. Revelation is actually written in such a way that the very experience of reading it should train us in the virtue of steadfast hope. Think about it. It's written with all these twists and turns, with multiple series of events. You have a series of seven that occurs several times. You have seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls of wrath. And all of these are illustrating in some way the sufferings that the church of this day was going to go through. It takes so long sometimes to move through the difficulties of life. It feels like you're there forever. And this is what it was like for these churches. They would feel like they were there for a very long time. But steadfastness, is exactly what these Christians would need as the crisis hit. When there was a call on them to stand firm in the faith and to follow Jesus, steadfastness is exactly what they needed. It's not an easy thing to be faithful to God when our lives fall apart. And it's especially difficult when the threat is aimed directly at faith. You know, all these Christians would have had to do is say something to the point of, maybe Jesus isn't that important. Morality, integrity, they're not that important, I guess. If they could just ward off their conscience for long enough, the pressure would have been relieved. And there no longer would have been a threat on them. But this is the exact kind of deception that God is warning them about throughout the book. Those who are threatening them are like ravenous beasts, God says. They seek your destruction. Do not give in to them. These Christians would have to exercise a steadfastness, a resistance to the beast, and a devotion to Christ if they were to keep their life through it all. Now, I want to draw your attention to a movement in the plot of Revelation. 
specifically in the posture of Jesus. Okay? At the beginning, this is Revelation chapter 1, John saw a vision of Jesus standing among the lampstands. Do you remember this? He's standing among lampstands, and the lampstands, we're told, are the churches. This vision was supposed to give them some assurance that Jesus is going to be with the churches in what they're about to go through. Now, since then, think about that. This is all the way back in chapter 1. And since that time of that vision, we've heard about these seven seals, about the seven trumpets, and about the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And, And these events are taking place. This is an apocalyptic telling of things that are taking place on earth over a period of years. All of these are heavenly pictures of what's going on in the lives of these churches. Of persecutions, but also of ways that the persecutions are going to backfire on their persecutors. Hear me carefully. This is part of the deal. People never get away forever with hurting others. They do not. It might look like it all around us, but they do not. They never get away completely with killing, with especially killing God's people. Whether it's an individual or a nation, eventually it will come to haunt them. So last week in Revelation chapters 18 through 19, we heard an apocalyptic, a heavenly telling of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And the reason for that destruction was because of what they did to God's people. What Jesus warned them about finally came to pass. Now that was the first vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, right? He's standing among the lampstands. These years drag on of persecution, of pain and difficulty. But here, in chapter 19, John has another vision of Jesus. This time, Jesus isn't standing anymore. He's enthroned. He's mounted on a horse and he has a crown. He's carrying out judgment and he has an army. Now, in other places of Revelation, we've found out Jesus' army is the martyrs. They're clothed in white robes, linen robes. This is uh, martyrs who have followed Jesus and given their lives and faithfulness to him. Jesus stood among them in their suffering, and now they've joined the heavenly army. Now, here's the plot movement, okay? Christians suffer in steadfast faithfulness to Jesus. But through suffering, they are elevated to reign with him. So he said in chapter 1 he would be with them. Between chapter 1 and 19, they are killed. And here in 19, we discover that they have been resurrected. They've experienced the first resurrection. And now they are part of the army with Christ and they reign with him. Now, our tendency is to read this battle literally. Look, all, it's so hard to read apocalyptic literature. It's so difficult for us. Uh, you know, we listen to it and we're either excited or disgusted by how grotesque it is. Birds engorged from feasting on flesh. That's tough to listen to, isn't it? Always remember that Revelation is written symbolically. That does not mean that the language has no meaning and no significance. But clearly this war is different from the violence that we are used to. For instance, where is Jesus' sword? 
This is fascinating. You know, it says there's a name on his thigh. You know why there's a name on his thigh? Because what belongs on a warrior's thigh is a sword. But where does Jesus' sword come from? His mouth. Jesus' sword is his word. It's his name. This is how he destroys And so instead of a sword on his thigh, it's his name because this is his power. But how does Jesus' word slay people? Still, this is is tough. How does it do this? Have you ever had the experience of someone saying something to you that was so true, yet so difficult it felt as if it pierced you? Haven't you all had this happen? Maybe it was someone who was close to you uh, who told you something that you know to be true and yet it was so, so painful, it cut deep. Maybe it was someone you don't like and that makes it even more difficult. <laughs> Christians are people who have had God speak to them in this way over and over. They've received the wound of God's love and at the same time they have received his word of mercy. Of life, You see, God said the painful thing to us. It cut us to the heart. And at the same time, this is what's so wonderful about God, He speaks the word of mercy over us and says, this is true, but I love you. And you're forgiven. God's piercing becomes to us a way of creating new life, not of destroying. In fact, the deeper God pierces us, the deeper our life becomes. You see, if God is willing to go all the way to the root of the ways that our lives are crooked, the more life we receive. But in this case, in this war, we're hearing about people who have refused to hear God's word about the crookedness of their lives. So instead of it creating life, it has slayed them. This passage speaks especially to those who bear authority and power and use it to oppress others. Remember it said that these were kings and all the powerful men of the earth. God's word eventually lays you flat, even if you resist it. It'll pierce you to the depths. Johnny Cash has this song that I love to listen to. God will cut you down. He's going to cut you down. He does eventually cut people down when they refuse to listen. How is God's new creation coming into the world? In these passages, we're seeing that it comes as part of the church's steadfastness, part of the church's willingness to resist the beast and the beast's deceptions and to follow Jesus. But there's a lot more here about steadfastness. So in chapter 20, we hear of Satan being bound for this thousand years, then he's re-released for an undetermined period. Here's something I think it's important to keep in mind when we read this. Jesus said during his ministry that Satan was being bound. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man? Jesus is speaking about his work of casting out demons and of reclaiming people for God. In order to do this, Jesus had to bind Satan. And here's what's also remarkable. 
Jesus said that the church would do greater works than these. There is no reason to think when we read this passage in Revelation 20 that Satan being bound for these thousand years would usher in a period of perfection. There's no reason to think that. That this is the period of the new heavens and the new earth. What it does indicate is a period in which Satan's power is limited. Now, how do we think about this? I have a good friend who when you ask him really hard theological questions, he, he'll tell you, this is what I think today. <laughs> I can't promise you tomorrow. Um, you know, we're, we're attracted oftentimes to really hard set answers, firm answers. But I actually think there's something good about having that type of humility when it comes to these harder parts of Scripture. It's not as if we're not taking a stance and believing something, but we're open to dialogue. So here's what I think today. <laughs> as I said earlier, we can start with what's clear. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were a death blow to Satan. They were. He's wounded. He's bound to some degree. But here's something more Revelation gives us. For 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, Jerusalem was a hotbed of resistance to the kingdom of God. It was. The devil and his minions were busy in deception, even orchestrating an alliance between Israel and Rome against the followers of Jesus. The devil did this. He led God's people, his chosen nation Israel, to orchestrate an alliance with an evil nation to destroy followers of Jesus. This was one of those unique historical manifestations of evil, sort of like the Holocaust. This was evil. When Jerusalem was destroyed, the devil received another blow. In 70 AD, when Jerusalem fell, the devil received another blow. Now, how is this the case? Here's how it's the case. Religion is one of the greatest places for the devil to disguise himself. Okay? Religion is one of the greatest places for the devil to disguise himself. The reason is, is that within religion, he can appear as an angel of light. This is what the devil loves to do. We all have to be aware of this in our own faith. Our own faith is one of the easiest places to fall prey to the devil's schemes when we feel as if we can justify ourselves with religion. This is why we love to say, God told me to do this. The temple in Jerusalem had been a place that the devil could disguise himself as an angel of light. But with the temple destroyed, he would have a harder time hiding. Meanwhile, God took his work to the nations. Listen, this is what God does. If a group of people decide, we're not going to let God do what he wants to do here, God takes his work elsewhere. And this is what he did with Jerusalem. It was leveled, and he took his work to the nations. The church became a universal family. So, these thousand years, they're a symbolic period after this period, after the first century, for the church's labor for God's kingdom. 
It's not literal. Just like so many other time references in Revelation are not literal. It's symbolic for a long time. This is the period when the church is called to the greater works that Jesus said the church would do in his name. This is the period when the martyrs rule from heaven over earth. The martyrs are ruling now. This is why it's such a blessing to experience what's called the first resurrection. It means that when you die as a Christian, you are immediately alive with Christ and you reign with Christ. This is the period now for steadfastness in following Jesus and serving his kingdom in the world and in resisting evil. Now, before we close, what are some specifics of what this steadfastness looks like? This passage gives us several. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to look at chapter 21, verse 8. Chapter 21, verse 8. And while you're turning there, here's here's the lead up. Jesus has just said, whoever is thirsty, I will give from the spring of water, the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, in other words, the one who is steadfast, will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my child. But then Jesus gives this other warning. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You know, one of the saddest things we see in our world are people who, because of walls they build up in their lives, are not able to receive love. Think, think with this, about this with me for a minute people who it's so difficult to have a relationship with because if you say anything in criticism of them, they take it as absolute hatred. And you cannot remain together. They don't know how to receive the wound of a friend. They don't know how to love another person with a kind of love that's not fearful. What this passage is telling us is that there are people who cannot make it into God's new creation because they're not able to receive it. Here are two categories of what steadfastness looks like. It's the opposite of the traits listed here. So courage, the opposite of cowardice, and faith, the opposite, of course, of faithlessness. To enter God's new world requires resisting evil. And resisting evil often requires you to engage in conflict. And to engage in conflict requires courage. So in the church of the future, there simply will be no room for cowards. Those who shy away from the conflict and the struggle that are necessary to the kingdom of God. Now, what does steadfastness look like in this case? It looks like ongoing growth and courage. Look, God's word is not meant to be condemning in the sense that, oh, I'm, I struggle with courage. That must mean I'm not going to make it. It's meant to be convicting in the sense of, I struggle with courage, God. Have mercy on me and help me to be courageous. So don't hear this as a word of Condem- utter condemnation. Hear it as a word of conviction. Confess it. 
and enable God to give you the courage you need. It means that when we're tired of the often lonely road of faithfulness to God, of entering the conflict and the fray, God will give us a well of courage to draw on, to continue walking with him. Steadfastness looks like courage, and it also looks like faith. So I I think the Christian life is a lot like driving on the highway or a road. Just picture it, where you have places where you can just veer off to the right or the left. And in those places, it can be sort of obvious. uh, You know, I know that road is going to take me away from God. And oftentimes, through God's mercy, you're able to resist that. But there are other times when you're driving on a road and, and there are just these whys. <laughs> these small diversions that you can take. And the only way you know the difference between where that road will take you is whether that road requires faith or not. Is that road a road of fear or a road of faith? And Christians are those who time after time you encounter this diversion in the road, this why. And you you know, you ask yourself, is this road going to require faith? Or am I going to go this way in fear? So, for instance, when it comes to money, whether to be generous or not, or whether to choose a profession simply because of money, Christians have to ask themselves, Am I living by faith or am I living by fear? Uh, When it comes to relationships, especially when you're young and you're thinking about uh, a potential mate, you have to ask yourself, is this relationship based in a fear of loneliness or is it based in faith that God is going to take care of me? Our life is made up of all these decisions that we have to make. Forks in the road where we have to ask ourselves whether we're going to trust God or not. And Christians are those who choose to live by faith that God has made us his children and he will always care for us. So Revelation, it is about Jesus' work of joining heaven and earth, of God making his dwelling place with humanity forever. How does this come about? Well, certainly it's through the work of Jesus but it also comes about in the midst of the steadfastness of his church. Serving the world, even suffering for it, in the certain hope that we will be joined with Christ in his glory. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.